It's so good to be with you again, and we're going to Psalm 74. Hey, good news, we're only covering two verses tonight. Bad news is, you know how that goes when I'm preaching. Um, We are looking at uh, some questions here that Asaph asks, and this is in the context, remember, of the temple being destroyed. Uh, it, It is kind of puzzling, let's be honest, kind of puzzling, When you have a temple that is built, the worship of God is going on, and any time any of the Jews violated the protocol laid down in the law of Moses, what happened to them? Well, they died. You can go back and look at the uh, beginning, Aaron's sons. uh, They went and they offered strange fire on the altar, and that just meant that they were unauthorized to do so. What happened? They died. When they're moving the Ark of the Covenant uh, out of the land of the Philistines back into the land of Israel. You know, it's interesting. uh, The way they were supposed to move the Ark was by uh, the Ark was a big box, had rings on the bottom of it. And they would put poles through the rings and the priests were supposed to carry it. Well, it's interesting. The Philistines, when they wanted the Ark out of their land because of the trouble it caused... They put it on an ox cart. That's not really the prescribed way to do it. But think about it. The Philistines were touching the ark, carrying the ark. They had stolen the ark. And then they placed it on an ox cart and, um, you know, sent it on its way. And yet when they are taking it where it needs to go, you remember the ark started to fall. And one of the Jews steadied it and he died immediately. Why the discrepancy? Why were the Gentiles able to do it, but the people of God were not? What's going on here? And then you find that uh, during the time when the temple was destroyed, if any Jew had gone into the Holy of Holies, he would have died. Even the high priest would have died if he went in the wrong time or in the wrong way. And yet Nebuchadnezzar and all of his troops can go right into the temple, plunder the temple, Uh, burn the temple, destroy everything that's in there, and is very violent and even set up idolatrous military banners in the temple, and God doesn't do anything to them. Now, we can look on one hand and say, well, these pagan Gentiles, they were ignorant of all of that. Well, that could be. Even um, in the book of Acts, when Paul is on Mars Hill, he does talk about there are times when God overlooks sins of ignorance. But uh, when we look at Nebuchadnezzar, that wasn't really something that he just inadvertently did. That was planned to destroy the temple and, in his mind, destroy the God of the Hebrews. What do you think is happening here? Well, I think um, you're going to see, especially as we get down near the end of of the message we're going to talk about, is that sometimes... We get to the point to where we are concerned about the sins of the pagans without realizing that actually God is more concerned about the sins of his people. You see, for the Philistines to do whatever they did with the ark was one thing, but for a well-meaning Jew who knew the law and knew what was supposed to take place and knew that he was not allowed to touch the ark, for him to do it, that's a different matter. And so Asaph asked some questions here. And the questions, um, it, it was kind of interesting to me as I was reading through this and meditating on it, 
Nobody really asks these questions in good times. Now, there may be some, you know, pessimistic people that if the stock market's riding high, they go, well, I wonder how long this is going to last. Or if there's a time of peace, well, I wonder how long this is going to last. But nobody sits around doing good economic times or times when they have good health or prosperity or anything like that. And they look at God and look to heaven and go, oh God, how long is this going to last or continue? Because we assume that the good times really ought to be the normal times. Now I think if we look back through life and we look back through our family history, we look back through... Um, the Bible and other sources of history, I think we'll find out really that, that war and pestilence, famine, uh, oppression, those kind of things are a whole lot more normal than we would like to admit. And those are God's ways of reminding us of how wonderful and beautiful and peaceful uh, heaven is going to be. And uh, we need to be reminded of that from time to time so that we look up and we... Uh, uh, long for that day when we are in heaven with the Lord and away from all of this. But while we're on earth, Jesus said, we'll have tribulation. But be of good cheer because he's overcome the world. Now, Psalm 74, verse 10 and 11, just very short. It says, Oh God, how long will the adversary reproach? That's a good question, isn't it? I don't know the answer to that, and you don't know the answer to that, but God does, but it is in our heart. Here's the next question. Will the enemy blaspheme your name forever? Well, it's a good question. I don't fault him for that. And then it says in verse 11, Why do you withdraw your hand, even your right hand? You know, we want uh, God to to touch, to move, to show his power. Asaph said, why'd you pull back? Why did you pull back your right arm, the arm of power, the arm of authority? That's where the problem comes from. In his mind, God is not really working and moving and doing what he ought to do. And he doesn't understand why. And he says, take it out of your bosom. We might say, take your hands out of your pockets okay, and destroy them. So Asaph's looking at all of this, the burning, the looting, the plundering of the temple, the blasphemy of God, the uh, deportation of the brightest and best that Israel has, Daniel and people like that. And he says, Lord, I've got the answer. You take your hand out of your pocket and destroy them. There, that solves the whole problem. But does it? But does it? Well, I think if we uh, understand what's going on, we can look at this from two perspectives, okay? Let's think about Asaph and what he is going through, what his family is going through, what his nation is going through, and we can, from the human side, understand those questions, can't we? We also have to look at this psalm through the eyes of God. Why did the Holy Spirit have this written? Why did he preserve these words? What are we supposed to learn and what are we supposed to think about? Now, these are thought-provoking questions. I mean, if uh, you've heard people ask this question, if there is a God and he is a loving and a powerful God, then why are there diseases? Why are there starving children? Why is there war and conflict in the world? You've had those questions asked. And um, 
you know, the answer that might satisfy a Bible-believing Christian does not really satisfy an atheist, for example. Um, these things are things that we probably ought to think about, and we probably ought to think more deeply about them than we really do. Let's also be honest and consider this. When someone else is suffering on the other side of the world, we can give very simple theological answers. When it is our child, when it's our spouse, when it's somebody that we love and it's here, well, the questions are a little bit more intense and the answers probably are not quite as satisfying. Those simple answers are not quite as satisfying. I think we've all kind of experienced that. Now, I want to um, call your attention to three different passages of Scripture and three different prayers that concern this idea of the temple and worship, covenant, people being in the land, uh, destruction and deportation and all of those kind of things. Because uh, it's probably pretty important for us to remember that the people of Israel and the people of Judah, remember at the time of these invasions, they were two separate nations. It's probably important for us to realize the people of God were not unwarned. This was not like they were looking and going, what happened and why did this happen? In fact, even the questions of Asaph are kind of answered by some of the things we're going to read. In 1 Kings chapter 8, this is at the dedication of Solomon's temple, a big, grand, uh, wonderful edifice, right? And uh, Solomon prays the dedicatory prayer. In fact, the glory of God comes down so strong like a cloud that the priest couldn't even minister. But listen to these words. These are the words of Solomon while he's praying at the dedication of the temple. When your people, Israel, are defeated before an enemy, well, that's what Asaph's been talking about, right? Because they have sinned against you, well, there's the reason, and when they turn back to you and confess your name and pray and make supplication to you in this temple, oh, now we've got a problem because in Asaph's time, remember, the temple's been destroyed. Then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land which you gave their fathers. Isn't that interesting that Solomon talks about the uh, sin of the people, right? And then he talks about them being defeated in battle. Well, that happened when Nebuchadnezzar invaded Jerusalem in 586 B.C. And then he says that when they repent bring them back into the land. So it even spoke of deportation. I think it was common knowledge because of the words of the prophets and Moses and even this king of Israel that Israel's stay in the land was dependent upon their obedience to the Lord. And so God as punishment, as discipline, as correction to uh, these people would actually take them out of the land if need be. Now, that's what the prophets told them over and over and over. What did they do? They ignored it. They ran the red lights. They proceeded on without caution. And uh, because of that, then when this happens, and when they're deported, and when the temple is destroyed, then these questions that Asaph asks, 
were probably very common questions. Where are you? Why are you not doing anything? And Lord, we've got the solution. Just destroy them. Pull your hand out of your pocket and get busy and do something. Kind of an indictment maybe a little bit against the Lord. But you felt that way and I felt that way at times. Where is God? Why is he not doing something about all of this? Well, in Jeremiah chapter 14, now Jeremiah was one of the prophets that talked a lot about the deportation of Israel and Judah being overrun and even gave the time frame. But uh, this has always been an intriguing and interesting uh, passage of Scripture to me. Jeremiah 14, verse 7. Okay, here's Jeremiah. O Lord, this is a prayer, though our iniquities testify against us. Well, that's good. He's confessing sin. Do it for your name's sake. In other words, Jeremiah is saying, Act not because we deserve it, but for your own glory. For our backslidings are many. There's confession of sin. We have sinned against you. Oh, the hope of Israel, the Savior in time of trouble. Those are good words, biblical words. Why should you be like a stranger in the land? Now, a stranger in the land, that's somebody who doesn't really care what happens, right? If I'm in, you know, Salt Lake City and I'm just driving through uh, on my way to somewhere in California, I don't really care that much about what happens there or their economy. I may notice it, but, you know, I've got other places to go. And Jeremiah says, Lord, you're not acting like our God. You're acting like a stranger who doesn't really care. You see that? He says, uh, and like a traveler who turns aside to tarry for a night. What do I care? As long as I have a place to stay tonight, as long as Motel 6 <laughs> leaves the light on for me, I don't care because I'm gone the next day. That's what Jeremiah says the Lord was acting like. A stranger. Someone who doesn't belong here and doesn't care. A traveler who's just here for a night and then he's gone. Verse 9 he says, Why should you be like an astoni- uh, like a man astonished and like a mighty man who cannot save. In other words, we may look at something and, um, okay, let's, let's say that we're in New York City and uh, the planes, the second plane crashes into the uh, Twin Towers, okay? And we are there and you are, let's say it's you, you're the strongest person on the face of the earth. In fact, let's say you are one of the most powerful people. In fact, let's make you the President of the United States, You are Donald J. Trump or maybe George W. Bush since he was president back then. And you were there and you were standing at the base of the Twin Towers. And you know what? You're the most powerful man in the world. And yet you are powerless to keep the planes from crashing into the building. You're powerless to put out the flames. And you're powerless to rescue those over 3,000 people who are going to die. Jeremiah says, Lord, why are you like a mighty man who drops his jaw? Why are you like a mighty man who can't save? Why are you like a person who sees the problem and is astonished by it and you have no answers? That's the human side of things. That's the way it looked to Jeremiah. We've seen that in some of the Psalms we've looked at as well. That's honest. That's real. That's raw. That's humid. And... um, He says, yet you, O Lord, are in our midst. I mean, you're here. And we are called by your name. Do not leave us. 
Well, God's got an answer. Listen, listen to this. And this is probably the God you don't hear preached very often. Thus says the Lord to this people, They have loved to wander. They have not restrained their feet. Therefore, the Lord does not accept them. God's not desperate, in other words, right? He's got some standards, high standards. And he says, He will remember their iniquity now and punish their sins. Then the Lord said to me, in verse 11, Boy, this is tough. Do not pray for this people for their good. When they fast, I will not hear their cry. And when they offer burnt offering and grain offering, I won't accept them. I'm not impressed by their rituals. But I will consume them by the sword and by the famine and by the pestilence. And right after that, Jeremiah, all he can say is, Ah, Lord God. This is devastating news. And so God is laying out through Jeremiah to the people. You're not going to listen to me. There's going to come a time when the heavens are going to be like brass. And I won't hear what you say. Now, does that mean God is completely done or completely through with them? Well, no. You know your Bible well enough to know this. God was disciplining them and he was correcting them. And that was set, I believe, in Jeremiah 14. God makes it clear this is now irreversible. You know, there are times when you and I can sin and when we can rebel against the Lord and then we call out to him and we repent and confess our sins and we're forgiven and he's also merciful. Sometimes even the consequences are minimized. Sometimes they don't even happen. God's a good and forgiving God and he loves to forgive his people. He's not reluctant. But these people Year after year after year and prophet after prophet after prophet. And there were times when the rain didn't come. There was time when pestilence came. There was time when they were defeated in battles and it didn't make any difference. Anything they did was only temporary. Remember Asaph said in Psalm 78 that even when they did turn to the Lord, it was mere flattery. They were just saying the right things, but they didn't really mean it. Does any of this sound familiar in your life, in your family, in our state, in our nation, in the culture in which we live. It really does to me. And I want to call your attention to a third prayer. And this is in Daniel chapter 9. And it says in verse 1, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of uh, the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. This is the Persian king who conquered Nebuchadnezzar's uh, empire. Verse 2, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood the books, uh, by the books the number of years specified by the word of the Lord. Look at this. We just read about it. Through Jeremiah the prophet, that God, he, would accomplish... Seventy years in the desolations, that's what Asaph's talked about in Psalm 74, of Jerusalem. Then I turned my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments, 
We have sinned and committed iniquity, and we have done wickedly and rebelled even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers and all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, and to us shame of face, as it is this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, who's, um, uh, those near and those far off in all the countries where you have driven them because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. Okay, three prayers. Solomon's prayer was a warning and a promise. Israel, when they sin, when they are deported, when they are defeated in battle, let them turn back to you, uh, turning toward the temple. And you remember Daniel did that even in exile. He would open the windows and pray toward Jerusalem. That's what got him thrown in the lion's den. We find Jeremiah as he pours his heart out as the prophet of God, the weeping prophet, concerned for his fellow citizens. And God says, Jeremiah, stop it. Shut your mouth. This is what's going to happen, and your prayer is not going to change it. And then you have Daniel, one of the ones who was actually exiled, captured by Nebuchadnezzar, taken to Babylon. Now he's an old man, and he reads in the scrolls of Jeremiah, and he figures out what Asaph didn't, that the exile was 70 years. He looks at the calendar, and he says, wow, the time is coming up. And what does that cause him to do? To start to pray and to confess the sins of his people and the shame of their people, the uh, shame of not being in the land, the shame of not having a temple where they could worship. All of that, not because God failed, but because they failed to keep their covenant. That's how serious God is with sin. So Asaph's questions just kind of boil down to uh, something like this. When will the enemy be stopped? That's what he means when he says, Oh God, how long will the adversary reproach? Well, till God's purpose is accomplished. And also, part of that purpose is bringing the people of God to acknowledge, confess, and repent because they've actually learned their lesson. Number two, Asaph asks, when will things get right? Because he says, will the enemy blaspheme your name forever? Is this the way it's always going to be? And the answer, of course, is no. There's a limit to what they can do. And there is a limit to where and how they can do it. And there's even a limitation on the time that they can do it. The question number three is, well, why won't you help us? If you're the all-powerful, almighty God who made a covenant, then why won't you help us? That's what it means when it says in verse 11. Why do you, look at this word, withdraw your hand, even your right hand? It wasn't just that something slipped out of God's hand. It wasn't like he was trying to hold on to sand. And uh, if you ever tried to do that at a beach when you were a kid and the sand was dry and you try to hold it, by the time you get where you want it, you don't have much left. It wasn't just that God kind of... You know, he tried, but he couldn't do it, uh, you know, type of thing. This was God actively, according to Asaph, taking his hand and withdrawing it from there. So Asaph says, why won't you help it? Have you ever said that to God? Yeah, guilty. Why do you withdraw your hand, even your right hand, the powerful authoritative hand? 
Well, understand that God had plainly warned them repeatedly, and it was their sin that was the issue. It reminds me of Isaiah 59, 1, a good verse for today. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. In other words, the problem's not with God. His ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. It's kind of like when you go out on a cloudy day, maybe a stormy day, and you walk outside, and I mean, it's almost dark. Does that mean that the sun went out? Does that mean that the sun went away? No, it means that the clouds were obscuring it. And so in God's situation in Isaiah 59, it wasn't that God found something bigger than he could handle. It wasn't that he ran away. It wasn't anything like that. He was still there. But their sins were like the clouds that obscure the sun. That's a good word for us today. Where is God? Why isn't he working? What, what is he doing? What is he up to? Well, sometimes we can't see it because we're living a life of compromise and a life of sin and a life of disobedience. And so when we say, uh, why won't you help us? Well, the answer comes down to this. Many times it's just like with Israel. It's because of sin. And the fourth question would be something like this. When will the enemy be vanquished? When is it going to happen? Well, Asaph probably should have read Jeremiah. Maybe he didn't have a copy of it. I don't know. We'll give him the benefit of the doubt. But Daniel read it in Babylon, and he was able to understand it was 70 years. That would have answered Asaph's question. And uh, so he says, take your hand out of your bosom and destroy them. And the implication is there, you could fix this if you only would. You could fix this if you only would. Well, that is certainly true. But God has a timetable and God has a purpose and God also knows us and he knows who we are and what we need to go through in order to be conformed to the image of his son as it says in um, Romans chapter 8. You see, we have to understand this and Asaph is right. If God will take his hand out and destroy the enemy, then it's over. Asaph is acknowledging the power and the sovereignty of God, isn't he? But he's not necessarily doing it in the most positive of ways. He's kind of saying, you are sovereign, you are powerful, you can destroy them. So why are you not doing it? There's a little bit of that in there. Now understand, the enemy does not have inherent power. They are granted and given power to do what they do by the Lord. That's a little puzzling sometimes, isn't it? And they can only do what they are allowed to do. There are limitations that are placed upon them, even the limitation of time. And I'll remind you of Revelation chapter 12, verse 12. It says, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. Well, on one hand, that's terrifying. On the other hand, that ought to be somewhat comforting to us. He may be wrathful, and his wrath is sure and true. Uh, Martin Luther said in that great hymn, uh, His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure, speaking of the devil. 
Well, that's what we need to remember. Yeah, he's wrathful and he is working and he is doing anything and everything that he can. Unbelievable things, inexplicable things. And we say, where is God? Why aren't you working? How long does this last? Kind of like Asaph does. That's a normal, natural human thing to ask those kind of questions. Well, we need to remember some things and we'll wrap up with this. Some things that ought to give us uh, some hope. And we need to think about our current situation. We've got so much. Boy, 2020 has been a mess, hasn't it? And we've got so many things going on. How long is it going to last? When is it going to be over? When are things going to settle down? What's the next election going to be like? What about the looters and rioters? What's going on behind the scenes? Well, just remember this. The sinner, because of his nature, continues to sin. We're not going to wipe out and cure the sin problem. Not, not until we get to heaven. While we live on earth and before the Lord comes, there's always going to be a problem with sin. And the Bible even says that after Christ has reigned on earth a thousand years, there's going to be a rebellion against him. As long as there are sinners who are unredeemed, as long as there are sinners and the restraints are taken off of them, where are they going to run? They're going to run to sin and to rebellion and to selfishness and to destruction every single time. We've got to get that in our heads. That's good theology. The second thing is that death and other time limits are actually a gift of God because they stop sin in its tracks, at least in that person. Uh, you ought to be thankful that when Adam and Eve sinned, God removed them from the garden and he also took away the tree of life. Because that would mean sinners would live forever. Can you imagine what kind of a collaboration it might be if people like Nebuchadnezzar and Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin and people like that were still alive and able to get together and work? Now, death is a gift from God. The wages of sin is death. And uh, there's a positive in that as well as, of course, the very, very negative. The other thing that we need to remember in these times is that the only hope is God's intervention. And that's what Asaph did have right. That's the only hope that we have. That's why we need to pray for that. And the enemy's time and freedom are coming to an end. And that's why the devil is wrathful. He knows his time is short. And as that time gets shorter and shorter, his anger, his fierceness, and his activity are going to intensify. Well, we can't end on that, can we? Because the one thing that we learn through those prayers that we read and what we know in the Scripture is this. God always keeps His Word. He may not do it on our timetable, but He knows better than you do and better than I do. And when His purpose is fulfilled, it's not only something that satisfies Him, Oh, what a blessing it's going to be to us as well. So hang in there and trust God. And when you ask questions, look for answers like Daniel did in the Word of God. Don't just leave them hanging. And then trust God because uh, He's on His throne. And He is ruling and He is reigning. And even in these dark times, we may not be able to see Him, but we know He is there. I want to thank you for... Uh, being faithful to watch these videos. 
Uh, we're very glad to be able to uh, put them out for you, and we pray that they're a help to you. Uh, do whatever you can. Pass them along. Tell other people about them. And also, I want to remind you again about the newsletter where you can keep up with things that are going on, prayer requests and all kinds of things. Go to gracewayokc.org. And when you go to our website, and you ought to go there often to keep up with things, go under, uh, there's, a, there's that place where you can find the drop-down menu, and under events, you'll see, I think it's at the bottom, the newsletter, and you can keep up with that uh, every week, as well as other updates and things that are coming on, and of course, watching our live stream services. Hey, this Sunday is Father's Day. We look forward to seeing you here. We had our best crowd yet this past Sunday. And uh, we put out some more chairs, still doing the social distancing. And this Sunday, we will actually have a nursery that is open. And we're thankful to uh, Bethany Trench and Gay Berry and all of the workers for what they're going to do. Temperatures will be checked before they go in. And, um, you know, we'll do everything we can to keep your children and you safe whenever you come to Graceway Baptist Church. So may the Lord bless you and thank you once again. And uh, we pray for you and let's pray for one another. God bless you and thanks for watching.